poor old Maria. Don't pray to the inclement God that denied your hopes your whole life. Don't ask for clemency from death. Your life was horribly dressed with hunger and ends dressed by asthma. But I want to announce to you in a low voice virile with hopes the most red and virile of vengeances. I want to swear it on the exact dimensions of my ideals. Take this hand of a man which seems like a boy's between yours polished by yellow soap. Scrub the hard calluses and the pure knots in the smooth vengeance of my doctor's hands. Rest in peace, old Maria. Rest in peace, old fighter. Your grandchildren will all live to see the dawn. From the poem, Poor Old Maria, You Are Going to Die, by Che Guevara Lynch. Che penned these words, while a poor woman he had been treating for months and cared for deeply was on her deathbed. You may not know this, but Che was an actual medical doctor, and for years before the Cuban Revolution, he conducted medical research and treated patients. For Che, the poverty-stricken Maria's abysmal plight encapsulated all that was wrong with Latin America. And that's important because Che was an internationalist. He wasn't just concerned with his own nation, Argentina. He sincerely wanted to change all of Latin America, a classic international revolutionary. And there was much to change. When Che examined Maria's wheezing and gasping body, he heard the whole problem of Latin America wheezing with every exhale of Maria's fluid-filled lungs. The dire poverty, the lack of adequate medical care, the extremely low standards of education. Che compared his own privileged life to Maria's. Che was literally descended from Spanish nobility. He was whiter than sour cream. Maria was not. Che, like Fidel Castro, had attended some of the best schools in Latin America. Maria barely received an elementary education, and what little she received wasn't too good. Che had a wealthy family he could, and often did, fall back on like Lenin and Castro before him. Maria had no one, just Che, a doctor she had met a few months before, who served her needs for little pay and could provide her with little medicine. And so... Maria died, choking on her own lungs, praying to a god Che didn't believe in. And while Maria died in her infected hovel, thousands of fat Americans absent-mindedly gambled away the money that could easily save and educate the millions of Marias who were dying and had died across the length and breadth of that giant zone of military conquest and economic exploitation commonly called Latin America. Tens of thousands of Americans spent millions in Havana and Tijuana on liquor, on gambling, on prostitutes. The youthful flowers of northern Mexico and Cuba squandered for American money. Che saw it all, written in the rune-like lines of Maria's haggard face. Maria, with a potential lifespan of 85 years or more, was dying at 50. Finally, she passed away, and then Che left the little putrescent room and ate spaghetti with a large, handsome man named Fidel. At that dinner, which lasted for hours, Fidel asked Che to join his revolution and serve as the doctor for his rag-tag spearhead of revolutionaries. CFA, Che responded. Vamos a arreglar las cosas. Let's go set things right. 
And that was the day the Cuban Revolution really began over spaghetti and meatballs at a dinner surrounded by the children of Cuba and Argentina's rich, segregated elite. The fate of entire nations was planned out and executed. But before we can get into that, I've got to thank Charles from Parts Unknown for buying us around and leaving an awesome note. I really appreciated it, Charles. I've also got to thank Mark from Birmingham and Matthew and all the guys down at Boise Firehouse Number 3. Thanks for the drink and thanks for your service. And if you want to buy us a drink, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit that make a donation button. But now I've got to tell you the story of how one of the United States' closest neighbors became one of her greatest enemies and ultimately reshaped the state of Florida itself, sending hundreds of thousands of Spanish-speaking exiles and refugees streaming into the Sunshine State and reshaping the entire political, economic, and cultural landscape of South Florida. Where would many of you live? Listening to this in Florida be if it weren't for the Cuban Revolution? Would you be in America? Would you understand English? Or would you still be living in Cuba and thinking in Spanish? I'm telling you the story of your state, Florida, of your city, Miami-Dade, of exiles and your forefathers who lost everything. It's sad that I'm the only person who ever cared enough to tell it to you. What do you think your children learned today in school, Florida? Do you think they learned about the blood and corruption that upturned their forefathers' ancient homeland? Well, here's one day we're going to learn about it. Here's one man willing to tell you the truth. If it sounds discordant and strange in your ear canal, it's because you don't hear the truth often. And so, Matthew, Mark, and Charles, let's have a drink to the truth. In 1952, a colonel and former president of Cuba named Fulgencio Batista overthrew the nominally democratically elected president of Cuba, Carlos Brio. But this was no sacred cleansing of corruption, no righteous revolt for human rights and dignity. For one thing, Prio himself was essentially corrupt, viewing office simply as a means to get filthy rich. For another, corruption had been baked into the Cuban political system for decades, especially since the 1933 Revolt of the Sergeants, which Batista himself took part in, and which helped him rise to power. Batista's coup took place three months before an election that Batista was likely to lose. Instead of accepting probable defeat, Batista simply overthrew the already corrupt Prio. And here's how one prominent Mexican intellectual described the fall of President Prio, quote, he fell like a rotten fruit, almost by his own weight, victim of his own intrigues, of his own uneven ambitions, and of his contempt for public opinion. Like other climbers, he recognized public office only as a ladder for rapid enrichment, and he recognized his closest collaborators only as helpers to make a fortune. Talkative in the moment of action, tortuous in his private relations, superficial in his affections, he was as inept for crime as he was condescending towards criminals, end quote. All Colonel Batista did was simply add another layer of corruption to the already seven-layer cake of corruption called Cuban politics. And so we see the constant dangers of corruption. It breeds yet still more corruption. And when politicians simply consider their offices as means for enriching themselves in a grandiose and transparent manner, they simply undermine their own legitimacy. I'm thankful for the history of peaceful transfers of power in the United States. But I worry when... 
As one French commentator notes, Americans expect their politicians to be millionaires and billionaires, to dance from political office to lucrative membership of corporate and NGO boards. Anyway, under Batista's rule, corruption flowered in a garden bed of pornographic and drug-scrambled excess. It was like the Marquis de Sade was released from the Bastille and given a country to destroy. Batista's idiosyncratic corruption would make for an intriguing television drama. The new president spent hours obsessing over the intercepted private correspondence and tapped telephone conversations of Cuba's oligarchic elite. He enjoyed listening to them, even when they often denigrated Batista himself. For hours, he holed up in his sumptuous mansion, screening asinine horror films and drinking with military cronies. He was lazy and was constantly throwing over-the-top parties replete with the finest foods and wines. Think of the sparkling glassware and smart servants genuflecting to the millionaires of Cuba like they were bowing to an idol in ancient Babylon. Everything mansions and gilded plates. The trash alone from these soirees was worth hundreds of dollars, perhaps thousands, and all of this rampant luxury was taking place in a country where hundreds of thousands of people were living in ramshackle tin shacks. And how are you rich divorcees living in Newport Beach, California, a few miles away from the metastasizing tent cities cancering throughout Southern California? How's your asset-allocated portfolio doing today? Your 15% invested in Vanguard's Total International Stock Index Fund. If you are a wealthy person living amidst widespread poverty, I highly suggest you read Charles Murray's Coming Apart, not so much because of what is happening today, but in order for you to compare your lifestyle to the lifestyles of presidents and secretaries of states in 1960s America. What was it Juvenal said? Now we suffer the evils of a long peace. Luxury more cruel than war broods over us and avenges a conquered world. No crime or act of lust is absent from where Roman poverty has perished. First tainted money carried in foreign ways and effeminate riches shattered the ages with foul luxury." And we can say with Lycurgus, love of money and nothing else will destroy Sparta. And so Cuba's rulers thought their party would last forever. And a decent snapshot of Cuba under Batista is provided in the films The Godfather and the masterwork of Cuban propaganda Soy de Cuba. I have to admit, when I first saw the film in high school, Soy de Cuba, I thought the portrayal of Cuba before the revolution was excessively critical. But after reading numerous books on the subject, I've changed my mind. Soy de Cuba was right. The excesses of Batista's rotten regime were a buffet of sin. At the time, I was too much of a hick from South Georgia to realize people could be so willfully decadent. Decades of political realism and intensive study, not to mention the rude observations I have experienced while serving the wealthy of America, have removed the scales from my eyes. Anyway, here's how Hugh Thomas masterfully describes Batista's rule. In the spring of 1952, the Cuban political system, such as it was, had already been tortured to death. The accumulated follies of 50 years were bearing their rotten fruit. The overthrow of Prio passed easily, the scarcely melancholy cry of Prio Sale, Prio quits, echoing throughout the cigar-smoking and rum-drenched streets of Old Havana. 
The prostitutes of Virtue Street knew that the substitution of Batista for Prio in the National Palace would make little difference to them. But Batista's easy triumph spelled tragedy to those who hoped, through the constitutional process enshrined in 1940, and through the Orthodoxo party, to create by the next election a new Cuba, a decent and happy country. For all interested in political decency, Batista's golpe, or revolt, in 1952 was intolerable, an event comparable in the life of an individual to a nervous breakdown after years of chronic illness. Thus to the men of the generation of the directors of the agricultural and national banks, Carrillo and Pazos, this event represented at the least a new monstrous interruption in their careers, already gravely injured by the interruptions of the 1930s, of the Machadado, and afterwards under Batista in his first incarnation, to such people often temperamentally sensitive, it seemed the final insult that Time magazine, the dream machine of the North, should in April for the first time feature Cuba on its cover with a special representation of the head of Batista and the Cuban flag behind him spread like a halo accompanied by the bright comment, Cuba's Batista, he got past democracy's centuries. With the onset of Batista's regime, the cancer of corruption continued to flow throughout Cuba. Sinecures called botellas increased everywhere. In the countryside, landowners connected with the regime or the army were able to do much as they liked living outside the law. Thus, in the region of Oriente, some landowners were able to take over the property of peasants by sheer force of arms. One man in mid-1953 took over 700 ranches by force of arms. End quote. There were constant arrests, often of key officials. One day, Jose was in charge of imports and exports for the entire nation. The next day, Jose was rotting in prison. Formerly, his voice had commanded ten servants. Employees without number groveled before his desk. Now he couldn't even get a letter to his wife. At such times, intrigues breed like maggots in the corpses of once healthy nations. Here was a regime ripe for overthrow, the kind of government where the dictator looks in a ten-foot-tall gilded mirror and wryly smiles at himself before an opulent banquet. You're so corrupt, he whispers in the mirror while adjusting his bow tie, and then he steps out into the air-conditioned banquet hall. He playfully winks at his mistress before giving a speech about the progress of his country. That such a man could tap sensitive intellectuals' phones, could send them to decrepit prisons, could have poets summarily arrested and executed, a state of affairs like that says something about the human condition. There's a pathetic story about all of us written in Batista's luxurating excesses. However, one thing Batista did do was bribe police and soldiers. The military loved him, and he was smart enough to share the fruits of his corruption with them. With these men... And with more bribes, Batista also put a stop to the endemic political violence raging in Cuba. The sad truth was things were more peaceful under Batista. So the Pacific water on a beach before the tsunami. One thing I will say about Batista is he wasn't bloodthirsty. He would sometimes reach out to opposition leaders and try to explain why his coup and the dictatorship were the best thing for the nation. And when university students demonstrated, he had the ringleaders brought to him and spoke with them personally, face to face, without animosity. His little talks didn't stop the student protests, but at least he made the effort. Do you know how many letters and emails I've sent to politicians, even local ones, that have gone unanswered 
countless. I've sent these letters since I was in high school because I earnestly believed in democracy. I've had one letter answered with a one-sentence response. And I'm a doctor who writes form letters better than Bukowski. What chance does an illiterate hick from Oklahoma have? It breaks my heart to tell you that. It's sad when a corrupt dictator in the Gulf of Mexico is more democratic than your own congressman. Our elite is very concerned about one another. They take each other's correspondence very seriously. But normal people, especially workaday schlubs who pay their taxes and keep their mouths shut, they don't get letters answered. Anyway, Batista promised to help the average Cuban sometime in the distant future. In the future, he would provide public buildings and public beaches. In the future, he would institute farm reform. In the future, he would provide basic housing for the tens of thousands of destitute subsisting in Cuba. The problem was Batista was 30 years too late. Change had been promised by politicians for decades, and no one believed in his promises anymore. The relative peace lasted less than a year. In 1953, college professors, who else, along with their students, armed themselves with guns and machetes and marched on their local military barracks. They were planning on asking the soldiers there to join them in a revolt against Batista, but Batista was ready. He knew everything that was going to happen in Cuba because his secret police were listening to everyone's phone conversations and reading everyone's letters. Every single student and professor were arrested. Over the following weeks, even more students were arrested. Little conflagrations like these happened sporadically over the next few years before the Cuban Revolution. The point I'm trying to make is there was important dissatisfaction within Cuban society. Hugh Thomas summarized the situation in one sentence like this, quote, the atmosphere in Cuba was everywhere warming up, end quote. And one of the key men stoking the fire and warming up the Cuban pot was Fidel Castro, the son of a self-made Spanish immigrant who worked his way up from a day laborer to a multi-millionaire. A prominent student leader, Castro was a man who attended the best segregated schools in Cuba. He was an excellent speaker with an even better memory. His brother Raul describes Fidel's early years like this, quote, Fidel succeeded in everything, in sport and study, and every day he fought. He had a very explosive nature. He defied the most powerful and the strongest, and when he was beaten, he began again the next day. He never gave up on anything, end quote. He fought with his father constantly, going so far as to organize a strike of his father's own laborers. But even though the two men never really got along, Fidel still expected his father, like Lenin's family before him, to provide him with funds for the rest of his life which his iconoclastic father continued to do even after his son became a prominent revolutionary. And when he went to the University of Havana, his father gave him a car, an untold luxury worth more than the net wealth of hundreds of thousands of Cubans at the time, probably today still. At University, Castro immediately became politicized and set himself up as a prominent member of student political groups. Now, this wasn't some debating society of snowflakes at Yale University or Oxford. Student politics at Havana University were often settled with fists, and sometimes even with bullets. It was during his university days that Castro received military training. 
He was placed in command of a group of Dominican Republic exiles, but his training camp was raided and most of the would-be insurgents were arrested. Castro, however, swam an incredible distance to safety and made it out without getting arrested. Fidel himself described the atmosphere of his university years in florid language like this, quote, the student conflicts and assassinations had their origins in the resentment and hatred which Batista sowed during his first 11 years of abuses and injustices. Those who saw their comrades assassinated wished to avenge them in a regime which was incapable of imposing justice permitted vengeance. The blame lies not with those young men who desired to make a revolution at a moment when it could not be done. Many of those who died as gangsters would be heroes today because when the worst is enthroned, a pistol at his belt, it is necessary to carry pistols oneself in order to fight for the best and the right. End quote. Did you catch that last part? Castro implicitly commended the American Second Amendment as an essential element in stopping tyranny. Too bad he didn't keep his own advice, though. After he took power, Castro used the gun registration list, you know, all those forms you filled out when you bought your firearm, to confiscate firearms from his own people. To this day, firearms are strictly regulated in Cuba. If only the people who endlessly talk about justice could humble themselves and realize, as Alastair McIntyre has definitively proven, there are many justices. There are many visions of utopia. One man's justice is another man's hell. Anyway, from 1948 to 1952, Castro led a more settled life. He got married and he stayed involved in politics. But he wasn't participating in gang warfare through the streets of Havana anymore. He got his law degree in 1950. He published articles in leftist magazines and he practiced law. By the summer of 1953... The 27-year-old Castro was fed up with Batista and all the other petty rulers of Cuba. He was fed up with the rampant corruption, the debasement of the Cuban people. He was fed up with the casinos and imperious Yankees who acted like they owned the damn streets of Cuba. And so he decided to do something about it. He gathered volunteers and firearms and he set out to attack a backwater military installation named Mocada Barracks. He would later write his goal was not a communist revolution, but simply to unite all the anti-Batista factions into one united front, with himself playing a prominent leadership role, of course. And so Castro gathered 150 working-class men and women into an ill-trained group of insurgents, which he labeled the Movement. There was no other name for the group at that time. A few months before the revolution, Fidel told his loyal followers this, quote, those who have a traditional concept of politics feel themselves pessimist in their present situation, but those who, in contrast, have faith in the masses, those who believe in the indestructible force of great ideas, will not be affected by the vacillations and gloom of the leaders, for this vacuum will soon be filled by tougher men from the ranks. The moment is revolutionary, not political. Politics means the consecration of the opportunism of those who have means. Revolution opens the way to true merit to those who have valor and sincere ideals, to those who carry their breast uncovered and who take up the battle standard in their hands. To a revolutionary party, there must correspond a young and revolutionary leadership of popular origin, which will save Cuba, end quote. With these words, Castro gathered his 150 supporters and marched on two different barracks, the Moncada 
and Bayamo barracks, navally hoping to sit off a rebellion against Batista throughout the island. At the very least, Fidel hoped to capture much-needed firearms, which he would then distribute to his followers. As usual, he used his father's funds to help finance the movement, which was nonetheless operating on a shoestring budget. The attack would take place on July 26, and from that day on, Castro's, quote, movement would be called the July 26 movement. A few days before the attack, Augustin Cartaya penned the famous words of the hymn, to July 26. Marching towards our ideal, knowing very well we're going to win. More than peace and prosperity, we will all fight for liberty. Onwards, Cubans! Let Cuba give you a prize for heroism, for we are soldiers going to free the country, cleansing with fire which will destroy this infernal plague of bad governments and insatiable tyrants who have plunged Cuba into evil. The blood which flowed in Cuba, we must never forget. For that reason, we must stay united in remembrance of those who died. The Cuban people, drowned in grief, feels itself wounded and has decided to pursue without respite a solution, which will serve as an example to those who don't have pity and we risk resolved for this cause to give our life. Long live the revolution. The attack came at dawn on July 16th. Castro was outnumbered 10 to one, but he felt surprised and the superior motivation of his troops would gain him victory. His men were ill-equipped, using mostly hunting rifles and a couple of revolvers. One man attacked the barracks with a 22 caliber children's rifle. He said his heart sank like a schoolchild picked last for football when he was handed the weapon he was supposed to start the revolution with. He was lucky it didn't have a pink stock. I've personally seen better arsenals in Redneck's private collections in the mountains of Appalachia. Anyway, only a few of Castro's soldiers knew what was going on before the fight actually began. A modern historian provides an excellent description of the glorious fight for Libertad's opening. Quote, at dawn at 5.30 a.m., 26 cars bearing 111 men, all dressed up as sergeants, and two women drove into Santiago from Sibonay. Castro was in the second car. The next car contained Raul Castro, who, with ten men, was supposed to take over the Palace of Justice overlooking the barracks. From the roof, he would be in an excellent position to give covering fire to his brother in the central courtyard of the barracks. Another three cars contained Abel Santa Maria, Castro's second in command, the two women and Dr. Munoz, 22 men in all. They would take the civil hospital nearby and be available to treat the wounded. One car had a puncture and was left behind. According to Castro himself, Due to a most unfortunate error, half our forces, and the better armed half at that, went astray at the entrance to the city, and were not on hand to help us at the decisive moment. End quote. But the group of university students who had withdrawn at the last minute had been ordered by Castro to follow the motorcade. They moved up into the middle in a Chrysler, and it was they who diverted several cars from the route to Moncada Barracks. Now, the first car halted at the gate of the barracks. Six men got out, and their leader, Guillotard, 
called on the sentry to make way for the general. The three sentries, deceived by the sergeant's uniforms, which they did not recognize, but which they momentarily assumed were those of a military band, presented arms, and these weapons, Springfield rifles, were seized from them. The rebels then burst into the barracks upstairs, pushing the sentries before them. Outside, Castro and the second car had been held up by two unexpected encounters, two soldiers with machine guns and an armed sergeant. Castro ran over the two machine gunners and the sergeant ran away, but the sergeant immediately raised the alarm. Following previous orders, once Castro's car stopped, the men in the following cars all leapt out and attacked the buildings to their left. Castro tried unsuccessfully to regroup his men. Inside the barracks, the men of the first car, having bewildered a dormitory of undressed soldiers, found themselves cut off and, having shot down a number of sergeants as well as the officer of the day, they had to withdraw. The alarm being given, a general fusillade followed from the first floors into the street. The attackers protected themselves behind parked cars, end quote. Meanwhile, Raul, Fidel's younger brother, was busy attacking the Palace of Justice, his assault went just as easily as you can make a ham sandwich. At the same time, another band of Fidel followers attacked a nearby hospital and took it over. If capturing lawyer offices and hospitals was all it took to make a revolution, Fidel would have taken over Cuba five years earlier. Instead, he was pinned down in a firefight behind a car like something out of the video game L.A. Noir. Quickly, Batista's soldiers rallied and made a concerted counterattack using their assault rifles and machine guns. It was no contest. The defenders' M19 Browning machine guns easily poked holes through the .016 centimeters of aluminum framing of the cars Castro and his men were hiding behind. You could see through the holes in the cars the way first graders pretend toilet paper rolls or pirate telescopes. Castro's attackers were rolling on the ground like epileptics. Every few seconds, a car's tire would blow out, making a sound like a thousand helium balloons suddenly popping all at once. One insurgent, a taxi driver turned warrior, started bleeding from his ears. His eyes were distant and lolling, as if his mind had transported him a thousand miles away. His bleeding head nodded back and forth like extras in a horror film, Psychiatric Ward. There was nothing for it. Castro's attack was going nowhere, and so Castro ordered his men to retreat. The retreat was more like a rout. Many of Castro's insurgents were wounded and or captured. At this point, the army had about 19 men killed or wounded, while Castro had only three men killed. But of course, at this stage, many in the initial assault were now captured. The attack at Bayamo, the other barracks Castro was attacking, also failed because a horse sensed the creeping insurgents and went ballistic thereby warning the garrison of the approaching guerrillas. Six of Castro's men were killed in the ensuing 15-minute firefight. At the end of the day, about 80 of the 150 insurgents were captured. A handful more were killed. An unknown number filtered out to foreign embassies and escaped to safety in exile. Most of the captured guerrillas were tortured and killed. A modern historian illustrates the morbid picture this way, quote, those who, like Castro himself, managed to hold out a few days in the forest escaped this death, but altogether 68 prisoners appear to have been killed, including three young men who had withdrawn from the attack at the last minute. Most of these prisoners were beaten with rifle butts before being shot, and some were tortured in other ways. Some died during the course of brutal treatment. 
Three prisoners at Bayamo were dragged along for miles behind a jeep. The two women, Heidi Santa Maria and Melba Hernandez, were not themselves tortured. But the brother of the former and novio of the latter were apparently tortured to death in their hearing, as was Boris Santa Colamo. 32 prisoners survived to be brought to trial, while 48 escaped altogether, returning to Havana by bus or escaping to friends' houses, end quote. The attack had shaken Batista's regime to the core. Hundreds of activists were arrested across the island. A few days later, Castro was found asleep on a mountain. He would have been massacred with the rest of the insurgents if prominent church and business leaders had not begged Batista to stop the killing. As it happened, Castro was arrested and thrown in jail. In October 1953, he was put on trial. He gave a brilliant and charismatic defense of himself, which won him fame among literate circles across the island. In the end, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison, but now he was known throughout Cuba as a hero, a man of action who fought against the regime in the streets themselves and denounced the corrupt government to its face. During his sentence, Fidel stood up and announced these words, quote, I know that going to jail will be hard for me as it ever has been for anybody who goes to jail filled with cowardly threats and wicked torture. But I do not fear prison, just as I do not fear the fury of the miserable tyrant who snuffed light out of 70 brothers of mine. Sentence me, I don't mind. History will absolve me. End quote. All across Cuba, hundreds of thousands of people read these words the next morning and nodded their heads in agreement. Castro was a name their minds would remember. The newspapers of the regime had inadvertently made a martyr out of a brave yet reckless trust fund baby. Castro spent his time in jail reading and easily communicating with followers, which was a criminal oversight of Batista's regime to allow him to talk to anybody. Outside the prison walls, Batista's regime was accepted, but not loved. There seemed to be more peace in the streets than before he took over. People just wanted to get along with a relatively peaceful life, and that's just what most Cubans did. In April 1955, Batista, feeling his position secure and hoping to further mollify tensions in Cuba, issued an amnesty for all political prisoners. Castro was set free in May and promptly fled to Mexico, where he immediately started planning yet another insurgency against the Batista regime. Historian Hugh Thomas wrote five decades ago what we're all thinking. He said it like this, This one act was Batista's greatest mistake of his life. And Hugh Thomas is right. Anyway, an historian explains what happened next like this, quote, in a matter of weeks, Castro decided to go to Mexico and to form a trained and disciplined group to provide the backbone of a guerrilla troop to overthrow Batista by force. Rumors circulated that the police were trying to assassinate him. Before Castro left Havana, he held a meeting with key supporters and friends detailing their roles in the coming struggle. His allies would simultaneously rise with him when he returned with this small group of trained guerrillas. Like a second Napoleon landing in France after an ignominious exile, end quote. And so Fidel went to Mexico, but there was someone else already there, another man who would change history. He was also blue-blooded, trust-funded, and a baby descended from Spanish nobility and a doctor. His last name was Lynch, reflecting his Irish heritage, but he preferred to go by his more Spanish-sounding name, Ernesto Guevara. Everyone who knew him simply called him Che. 
Fate, or Providence, depending on your worldview, was bringing the two revolutionaries together. What are the odds that Che, born in Argentina and leading a vagabond existence touring around Latin America since he received his medical doctorate, would end up in Mexico at the same time as Fidel? Moreover, what are the odds that Che would serendipitously find himself moving in the same circles in the same city at the same time as Fidel? Granted, both were adventurers and both were looking to change Latin American society, but still, Che could just as easily have ended up back in Argentina rather than Mexico. And since his exile, Castro had slowly built up a cadre of Cubans in Mexico while simultaneously keeping his name in the papers by pinning numerous articles. It was through his brother Raul that Fidel met Che. Che and Raul had first happened upon one another at a sort of salon where revolutionaries got together and preached at one another for hours in Mexico City. After their first meeting, Che invited Raul Castro to his house for dinner. The two became fast friends. At their dinner, Raul candidly explained he was an officer in the coming Cuban Revolution, and he had total faith in his brother Fidel, and that Fidel would lead the revolution to victory. You can count on it. And finally, a few weeks later, Fidel and Che met. Che was mesmerized by Fidel. He would later write in his diary, quote, I just met Fidel Castro, the Cuban revolutionary, a young man, intelligent, very sure of himself, and of extraordinary audacity. I think there is mutual sympathy between us, end quote. The two men had actually met on July 7th. They met at the local left-wing salon I told you about, and they decided to have dinner together at an Italian restaurant a few blocks away. We're going to plan the revolution at the Olive Garden. After several hours of discussion, Fidel invited Che to join his guerrilla movement. Che accepted on the spot, swearing to die for a man he had only known for a few hours, such as the true power of charisma. For Fidel, he needed a doctor for his soldiers, and Che was the man for the job. And so the two men set about planning their revolution. For over a year, Che and Castro, along with Fidel's little brother Raul, worked and schemed. They bought a ranch in the middle of nowhere where the men trained day and night. They changed their diet, foregoing the usual luxuries and living off plain fruit and basic staples. They took long hikes in the bush and constantly worked on their target practice. Fidel's agents ran up and down the Atlantic coast of both the United States and Mexico, desperately looking for a boat that could carry Castro's 80-man strong initial assault team. The boat was harder to buy than firearms. Then the bottom fell out. John Anderson picks up the tale, quote, Everything seemed to be progressing nicely when, on June 20th, 1956, armed Mexican police agents arrested Fidel and two companions on a downtown Mexico City street. Within days, virtually all the movement's members in the city were rounded up. Safe houses were raided, documents and firearms seized. Alerted, Raul Castro went into hiding while Che was left in command at the training ranch. He hurriedly destroyed any evidence and hid all the weapons he could before the police captured him four days later. End quote. All told, 20 Cuban revolutionaries were arrested. On July 9th, most of the Cubans were released from jail and went right back to plotting their revolution. Meanwhile, Fidel was busy telling anyone who would listen to him that he was not and never had been a communist. He was a nationalist, and he was a Democrat. The point of all this was to convince the Americans he was not a communist because Fidel knew if the CIA thought he was a communist, they would move heaven and earth to stop his revolution. Now, the next few weeks after Fidel's release from Mexican prison 
was a whirlwind of activity. Fidel moved heaven and earth to get his comrades released, often bribing Mexican officials. Invariably, the revolutionaries were told to leave Mexico in a few days, and just as predictably, the men did not leave, but went underground. Scores of Cubans arrived in Mexico to join the initial assault wave. Back in Cuba, Castro's agents were planning for the day of his arrival, but Castro had a big problem. He was out of money. And so he did what thousands of other would-be revolutionaries have done since 1900. He illegally crossed the border and met with Carlos Sacaras, the former president of Cuba who now lived in Texas. Carlos, who had himself been overthrown by Batista, agreed to bankroll Castro's revolution. Finally, Fidel had more than $500,000 in today's money, so his money problems were solved. Still, the Mexican police might arrest his ragtag band at any moment, so he needed a boat and he needed a plan. He still didn't have a boat, but he did have a plan. John Anderson details the plan. Quote, Fidel had decided to land his future invasion force on an isolated stretch of Cuba's southeastern coast that juts out in a cape, and where, inland, the land rises up to form the Sierra Maestra mountain range. It was there, in the mountains of Oriente, where Fidel would launch his guerrilla war. Oriente was not only Fidel's home region, but also the region where Cuba's 19th century patriots, including José Martí, had launched their invasions to fight against the Spanish. Beyond symbolism, there was a sound strategic reason for the location, the Sierra's close proximity to Cuba's second-largest city of Santiago. Here, Fidel counted upon the able offices of his underground coordinator, a 20-year-old student named Frank Pai. Once his men had landed and were in the mountains, Santiago would provide a nearby pool of funds, intelligence, weapons, and, of course, recruits to fuel the war. Celia Sanchez, a plantation doctor's daughter and a recent convert to the movement, had procured the coastal charts Fidel needed and handed them over to him just a month before, end quote. Already Castro's contacts in Cuba were planning for his return. Now all he needed was the ship to carry them all across the Gulf of Mexico. For months, the Cubans lived underground, hiding in backwater country towns, training, always training, and they used a cell structure so if one group was captured, the other cells could continue with their plans. And then the call came in from Fidel's treasurer, Hefe, I have found a boat, but it will cost us dearly. Fidel smiled to himself. This was just what he had been waiting for, and now his plan was finally coming together. A key fitting into the right lock. Buy it, said Fidel. But Hefe, don't you want to know how much it is? His treasurer asked. Fidel chuckled to himself as he glanced at the $500,000 lying on his mattress. No, just buy it. The boat was called Grandma. The would-be revolutionaries purchased it from an expatriate American with the condition that his beach house also be purchased by the guerrillas. Castro's men bought it, both the house and the dilapidated 38-foot yacht. The next day, Castro's men transformed into worker bees, scurrying over and under the grandma, desperate to make the rotting vessel seaworthy. Castro's 82 insurgents would barely be able to stuff themselves on board the crumbling ship, especially when you consider the men were transporting thousands of rounds of ammunition along with food, medical supplies, and firearms. What was worse is the Mexican police were closing in on Castro's men. They had already uncovered and arrested one cell. It wouldn't be long before they captured another one. Time was running short, and then the great day came, finally. Castro gave the order to invade Cuba. On November 23rd, Castro ordered his small army to assemble on the Grandma. 
On the night of the 24th, 1957, the men loaded onto the yacht and made ready to depart. Fidel believed the crossing would take five days, five days of excruciating, dank confinement. The men were practically on top of one another, crawling on each other like masses of teens at an American high school dance. They barely got any sleep amid the piles of supplies stuffed into every conceivable space of the grandma. The boat actually left port on November 25th before dawn. What would you write to your family if you were going off to war and facing long odds when you did it? Well, I can tell you what Che wrote to his, quote, And now comes the tough part, mother, that from which I have never run away. The skies have not turned black, the constellations have not come out of their orbits, nor have there been floods or hurricanes. The signs are good. They signal victory. But if they are mistaken, and in the end even the gods make mistakes, then I believe I can say like a poet who you don't know, I will only take to my grave the nightmare of an unfinished song. I kiss you again with all the love of a goodbye that resists being total. Your son, Che. The grandma had set sail. Cuba would never be the same. But these men who would change the fate of nations, who would send tens of thousands of Cubans fleeing to Miami with everything they owned packed into a few bags, who would threaten the greatest superpower of the planet with nuclear missiles, these guerrillas made a lackluster beginning to their revolution. For one thing, Batista knew they were coming and had stepped up patrols from his still loyal police and military to intercept them. Now, it's true that Bautista didn't know where and when the men would land exactly, but still, it was no secret they were on their way, and Bautista was ready for them. When Castro and his insurgents landed, they would have a battle on their hands. And on their way across the water to Cuba, Che whispered a poem he had written for Fidel. It was entitled, Canto a Fidel, and it goes like this, quote, Let's go, art and prophet of the dawn, along remote and unmarked paths to liberate the green land you love so much. When the first shot sounds, and in virginal surprise the entire jungle awakens, there at your side, serene combatants, you'll have us. When your voice pours out to the four winds, agrarian reform, justice, bread and liberty, there at your side with identical accent, you'll have us. And when the end of the battle for the cleansing of the nation against the tyrant comes, there at your side, ready for the last battle, you'll have us. And if our path is blocked by iron, we ask for all the Cuban tears to shed for us, to cover our guerrilla bones in transit to American history. Nothing more. End quote. John Anderson provides a masterful summary of the grandma's voyage and landing, and I would do you a disservice if I didn't quote it. So I will. Quote, The voyage of the grandma had been an unmitigated disaster. Instead of the expected five days, the journey took seven. Then, weakened from seasickness crossing the choppy Gulf of Mexico, the rebels landed at the wrong spot on Cuba's Caribbean coast. Their arrival was to have coincided with the rebel uprising in Santiago, led by Frank Paez, and a reception party awaited them at the Cabo Cruz lighthouse with trucks and a hundred men. The joined forces were to have attacked the nearby town of Nicaro, 
then hit the city of Manzanillo before escaping into the Sierra Maestra. But the revolt in Santiago had gone off without them, and any element of surprise Fidel had hoped for was irrevocably gone. The army, already quelling the fighting in Santiago, was on the alert. Batista had rushed troop reinforcements to Oriente province and dispatched naval and air force patrols to intercept Fidel's landing party. Before dawn, on the morning of December 2nd, the grandma approached Cuba's southeastern coast. As the men on board anxiously strained to spot the Cabo Cruz lighthouse, the navigator fell overboard. Rapidly using up the precious remaining minutes of darkness, the boat circled until his cries were heard and he was rescued. Then, after Fidel ordered the pilot to aim for the nearest point of land, the grandma struck a sandbar, turning their arrival in Cuba into more of a shipwreck than a landing. Leaving most of their ammunition, food, and medicines behind, the rebels waded ashore in the broad daylight of mid-morning. They didn't know it yet, but they had been spotted by a Cuban Coast Guard cutter, which in turn had alerted the armed forces. They had also landed more than a mile short of their intended rendezvous point, and between them and the dry land lay a mangrove swamp. The reception party, after waiting in vain for two days, had withdrawn the night before. They were on their own. Split into two groups after reaching dry land, the exhausted rebels floundered on through the bush, jettisoning more of their equipment as they went. As Che depicted them later, they were, quote, disoriented in walking in circles, an army of shadows, of phantoms, walking as if moved by some obscure psychic mechanism, end quote. As they did, government planes flew continuously overhead looking for them, machine-gunning the bush for good measure. Two days went by before the two groups found one another and, with the guidance of a local peasant, tricked inland, moving eastward towards the Sierra Maestra mountain range. End quote. On December 5th, the exhausted men rested in a sugarcane field, devouring the stalks the way middle schoolers' eyes ravenously devour pornography. That's when Raul called out for their local guide, Pedro! Hey, hey Pe Pedro! Where the hell is he? There was no answer, because the guide was gone, running as fast as he could to the nearest police station and bringing the entire army of Batista back with him as fast as he could, his 30 pieces of silver jangling in his pocket as he led them on. At 4.30 that afternoon, Batista's army attacked the revolutionary, sweeping through the lush, eight-foot-tall sugar cane, the cane that was the source of so much misery in Cuba, the profit motive of abject slavery. How appropriate that the first battle of the revolution took place in a sugar cane field. The battle was more of a massacre than a firefight, however. Castro's men were exhausted, thirsty, and they panicked. They had been haphazardly resting, exhausted, the way you flop on the ground after a long football practice under the blazing hot southern sun, but even more so. Imagine the most tired you've ever been, and now magnify it with hunger. Now imagine decently trained and well-paid soldiers attacking you in an extended, coordinated battle line. Some of you, the stronger ones, would fight back or escape. Many of you would get captured. All of you would lose. And so it was with Castro's men. The exhausted insurgents ran in circles, their hearts beating against the back of their eyeballs, their minds racing at 100 miles per hour. A few fought back. Most just tried to gather what supplies they could and escape. Some men were paralyzed by the shock of what was happening and just stood still, frozen. They were either captured or had their heads imploded into Campbell's chunky tomato and beef soup. Fidel and his closest comrades screamed for the men to escape, 
before they themselves rushed off in the sugarcane. And I want you to picture this sugarcane field. It's like fighting a war in an American corn maze, but the cane field is worse because the cane grows up closer than corn, forming impenetrable green webs of body-tripping vegetation. Where I grew up in South Georgia, there was a few cane fields. And I'll never forget the horror that slapped my insides one day when my older brother played a little joke on me, pretending to leave me in one of these cane fields when I was five. I screamed for help, but no help came. And in the distance, I heard my laughing brother joking with his idiotic friends the way Chucky the doll laughs at his victims in the child play films. Every inch of the cane field around me looked the same. My heart was in my throat. The South Georgia sun radiated and toasted my skin. Already thirsty, my overfed American mouth cracked in the heat. Wild and desperate, I ran through the field screaming for my brother. Now even his malevolent laughter was gone, and I was alone with the calling crows who took their turn to laugh at me. The king grabbed my shirt, tugged at my pants pockets. I tripped countless times before I finally found a dirt road. I sat down on the rural road and cried until I heard something and felt something wet, bluntly pushing on my face. It was my grandfather's golden retriever, Rex. He had heard me screaming and had come from miles away to find me. I've never been so happy to see a dog before. Anyway, the point is, these seemingly peaceful tall fields can easily transmutate into a body-tripping, senses-dulling nightmare. Che... His breath coming in short, deep gulps, desperately tried to gather a few supplies before making his way into the bush. Instead of grabbing medical supplies, he gathered a box of ammunition. That's when it happened. Che felt as if God had suddenly tackled him and hurled his light body into the grassy earth. The bullet had caught him in the neck. Che really did think the wound was mortal. He thought he was dying out, bleeding out there in the middle of a cane field in rural Cuba. He fired his rifle one time at his attackers and then laid back in the sugar cane, which fanned out around his body. And Che began to think of the best way to die. His mind remembered a story called To Build a Fire, an excellent story about facing death. Everywhere the police were screaming for the insurrectionists to surrender. Some men did. Many more were killed as they tried to escape. Che just leaned back in his makeshift sugarcane hammock. Didn't they know it was all over? Didn't they know none of this mattered anymore? That's when someone slapped Che and jolted him out of his daydream the way a workaday middle-aged husband feels shock waves of distress when he sees the letter and wedding ring from his wife on the kitchen table announcing she is leaving him for another man. Just so, a shock wave of energy reinvigorated Che after Juan Almeida slapped him and told him to get moving. Che obeyed. He and Juan ran through the sugar cane as gunfire screams and roaring flames painted an audio tableau of hell in their ears. Someone had set the cane field on fire. Wounded men, their eyes wide and animalistic, desperately tried to pull their unresponsive limbs out of the way of their approaching flames. Most made it. A few did not, and their terror-choked screams filled the tropical Cuban air as the excited buzzards called merrily to one another. A feast was in the works. Come! Come! They seemed to say to one another. Still, Che ran on, tripping and sliding, just running without thinking until he finally made his way to safety and regained his senses. He made his way to a pre-arranged rendezvous point in the mountains. Castro's army was about one-fourth depleted. 
But Castro was finally safe in the impenetrable mountains where a man who knew how to live off the land and had a few sympathetic peasants to help him out could hold out for years. Fidel had made it and was now a famous outlaw, but the cost was severe and many men paid in blood for their passage. John Anderson remembers the aftermath of the battle this way, quote, Che had been lucky. His neck wound was only superficial. Although some of his comrades escaped with their lives, over the coming days, Batista's troops summarily executed many of the men they captured, including the wounded and even some of those who surrendered. For the dispersed survivors, their urgent priority was to seek refuge in the mountains and somehow to find one another. Of the 82 men who came ashore from the Grama, only 22 ultimately regrouped in the Sierra. Che and his comrades stumbled on through the night. At dawn the next day, they found a cave and took refuge in it. For them, at least, there was no going back, but their actual situation could not have been worse. In his diary, Che wrote, We had a tin of milk and approximately one liter of water. We heard the noise of combat nearby. The planes machine-gunned. We came out at night guiding ourselves with the moon and north star until they disappeared, and then we slept again, end quote. The next days were an ordeal of survival as the little band hunted for food and water, dodging army airplanes and enemy foot patrols all the time. Once from a cave overlooking a coastal bay, they watched as a naval landing party disembarked on the beach to join the hunt for rebel stragglers. That day, unable to move, Che and his friends shared water, drinking from the eyepiece of their binoculars. The situation was not good, wrote Che afterward. If we were discovered, not the slightest chance of escape. We would have no alternative but to fight it out on the spot to the end. After dark, they moved off again, determined to escape a place where they felt, quote, trapped like rats, end quote. And when a small Seventh-day Adventist village gave the men food, their bodies reacted violently. Diarrhea and regurgitation rendered many of them unfit for combat. The army was still on their trail, but after days of hiking through the Sierra Maestra Mountains, Che and a few of his comrades linked back up with Fidel. Their reunion was not a happy one. Fidel was frothing with rage when he saw Che had lost his weapons. You have not paid for your errors you have committed, Fidel told them, because the price to pay for the abandonment of your weapons under such circumstances is with your life. The one and only hope of survival that you would have had in the event of a head-on encounter with the army was your guns. To abandon them was both criminal and stupid. That night, Che suffered an asthma attack, very possibly caused by the emotional upset of Fidel's disapproval. Several years later, Che admitted that Fidel's bitter reproach had remained engraved in his very mind for the duration of the campaign and even still today. But the next day, Fidel called Che into his makeshift headquarters and asked him to help him coordinate the next phase. The next phase of what, Hefe? Fidel just smiled. The revolution. But that's next month's podcast. All right. That's another one in the books for me. Once again, I got to thank everybody who tells a friend about the show. And, of course, everybody who buys this around, you guys really do keep the show going. Join us next month as we finish the bloody story of the Cuban Revolution, how Castro built his base in the impenetrable Sierra Maestra Mountains, how the rich and spoiled children of Cuba's liberal elite plotted a revolution in the name of social justice, how all the capitalism and theories of human rights came tumbling down like a second tower of Babel. What was it Nietzsche said? Everything is eternally recurring. That's how these little utopias end up. Nowhere. 
If only more rich kids would work instead of write. If they could only use their own money to create justice rather than mine. If you could only walk a mile in the shoes of the oppressed, holding them up, helping them bear their onerous load. Like the devout Mormons who tithe one or two Saturdays a month to farm, can, and deliver food to the poor. Like the Amish who come together and build barns for their neighbors. Like the Orthodox Jews in South Alabama who built a house for a mentally handicapped member of their community. Like the Wolf family, who worked the food bank that sends literally thousands of pounds of food into the elementary schools of Autumnville, Georgia. I have personally, and my grandfather before me and my son after me, have personally fed hundreds of elementary students, maybe thousands, and their families in Georgia. We deliberately packed extra food for the lazy parents who were too sorry to provide for their innocent children. And I want to be clear, I do not blame the children for their poverty whatsoever. Many of the kids who get the food from me don't look like me. Many of them do look like me. I fed them all anyway for years, and I didn't take one red dime from anyone to do it. And neither did the Mormons, and neither did the Amish. That's the kind of social justice I stand for. That's the kind of work and community that makes a people strong. But what do many of those that bleat about social justice stand for? Bread and circuses, pornography and crass entertainment, objectively more debasing than ennobling. There are hungry kids in your school, San Francisco. There are humble day class A people filling backpacks with food, silently working to help the helpless in your city, too. People with mullets and American flag kitty cat t-shirts. There are food banks who need donations and they're poor who need housing. Hundreds of thousands of them are children and old people. And if you really do care about them, build the houses you want them to live in yourself. My father personally built houses for destitute widows in Costa Rica. You can too. They don't need talk help and neither do the children and old people five miles away from you. They need work. Not policies, not administrators, not bureaucrats. Work! Something policymakers, administrators, and bureaucrats really despise. What was it Wisdom Personified said? Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which, having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. Anyway... Join us next month for public executions in urban warfare, suicide squads, and fascist defenders of Batista's corrupt regime. It's all here and it's all free on Battlecast. Until then, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye.